0: Hello everyone, thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy.
1: I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. This week, Paul's epistle to the Philippians and to the Colossians. So let's set the stage for for today's scripture verses that we're going to cover
0: with a quick review. Philippi, remember, is where Paul baptized Lydia. She was our first uh, known European convert, and it's in northern Greece, and it is a metropolitan metropolitan city. It is, it's a happening place in the first century. And keep in mind, there is an incredible sense of national pride and identity rooted in their Roman citizenship. Now, it might sound strange that here we are in Northern Greece talking about Roman citizenship, but remember that as the Romans are taking over, they're having massive wars, not just in Italy, but they're having civil wars in Greece, and in parts of Turkey and in other places in the Mediterranean region as well, Northern Africa. And what happens is is when those wars end, they leave behind all of these soldiers and these, these captains and generals and these powerful people, and they don't want them rising up in rebellion, so they give citizenship and set them up with power to be under control of Rome but give them just enough power to
1: say, okay, you, you've got your, your own domain here. And they're very loyal to the office of Caesar. Now, Caesar is the name of the man, Augustus, who transitions the Roman Empire from a republic, what we might call a democracy, into uh, essentially a dictatorship, although they would never use a word like that. They wanted to convince themselves that they still had some sense of... Uh, of Liberty. And so these people in Philippi, particularly the people in power were deeply aligned and loyal to the King or Caesar. Now, again, they never used the word King. That was like the bad word, but the person who was in power essentially acted like the King. So, so I'm trying, I'm not a great artist. So I'm trying very hard to draw
0: a, a very simple throne to symbolize this, this power that that emanates out from Rome throughout that that Mediterranean region now this is this is hard for us to wrap our head around sometimes because we don't experience this level of uh adoration towards an an office or an individual usually in our world today like they did back then but keep in mind they see caesar as a god son of a god and this this powerful being and that means that you're giving your focus to him you're serving him you're giving your loyalty to him and to the to the throne so to speak your identity is rooted in your citizenship and the privileges and the rights and the powers that he's bequeathing to you, giving to you. You you will sacrifice literally and figuratively for for he who sits on that throne. Um, You'll notice Caesar's image is everywhere back in the first century. He's on your coins. So you're carrying him in your pocket. Every time you make a, a purchase or a, an exchange of anything, he's right there. He's, he's part of that, he's, he's centered in it. He's always looking over your shoulder and he's always behind you because there are idols of him everywhere and there are images of him everywhere. Are you noticing this, this struggle? That it's not just Caesar. It's also the pantheon of gods and goddesses that symbolically are enthroned, and you have their idols and their altars, and you do sacrifice and obeisance to them. Now, let's make this, let's make this a little, uh, hopefully a little clearer, why Paul is saying some of the things he's saying in these epistles to the Philippians and Colossians and others quite frankly, but this is the this is a a good set of of uh books to discuss this because here's what's happening in the first century in that greco Roman environment your local city has a patron god or goddess for the Ephesians it was Diana, and she would they, they believed she was protecting their city, overlooking them. They build a temple to her, it becomes one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They buy statues of all sizes and varieties to, to give obeisance to her, give loyalty to, to serve, to focus on, to sacrifice for. Their identity is rooted in that goddess in that
1: particular instance. In, in fact, there was a riot that breaks out. Paul's preaching and the people That who are creating these statues dedicated to Diana, feel like their their status, their employment, their access to money is going to be diminished. And they basically cause a riot in the theater. And it's over like, we want to keep serving these gods. And Paul is saying, actually, there's a God who has focused on you and served you and been loyal to you and sacrificed for you. And he's going to give you a new identity. And People just didn't want it. Yeah, see, now, now keep in mind, it is much more than hitting these people, like
0: Demetrius's story that you're just sharing there from Acts, it's more than hitting them at the pocketbook. This is, this is their cultural identity. This is in the very fabric of, their, of, of the way they live, is that if something goes wrong in our society or in our city, if there's a famine, if there's a drought, if there's a flood, an earthquake, a volcano, a, a pestilence, a disease, a plague, if there's something bad that goes on in our city, their mindset is 100% wired to say, oh, we, didn't, we didn't make enough sacrifice or we didn't please our God or our goddess or our group of, of deities enough, and they're angry at us, so they're punishing us because we didn't, we didn't keep the feast or the festival the right way or we didn't perform enough sacrifice. Now watch this scenario, you've got that mindset, that cultural identity is in the fabric of their, of their DNA as a people. And now Paul and company show up in these groups of people and say, actually, that's ridiculous. As, as Taylor's saying, these gods and goddesses and this Caesar, no. There's only one God and you've got to worship him. Stop going to those festivals, stop performing those rites and those ordinances associated with that idol worship. Stop uh, making sacrifices at their altars and start worshiping the living God. Well, people, people are going to take notice. Well, hey, we're having the festival for our for our patron God or our goddess, And where are the Joneses and where are the Smiths? Hmm, they're not here. Then if something goes wrong in the next little while, guess who's gonna get blamed? Guess who's going to get the ire of all of the people, the townsfolk saying, it's you. You're the reason the God or goddess is mad at us. And you can see for two to 300 years, this is going to happen to Christians all the time. They become the, the scapegoat. If something goes wrong, Rome burns. Who does Nero blame? Even though he did it, he blames the Christians for the disaster. If there's a loss of a battle or a war, uh, we get up in arms and throw the Christians to the lions. That That is their solution, is they're at fault, we're going to punish them. And so you get this intense persecution of Christians because of their strict belief in one God and not worshiping Caesar, not worshiping, not, not giving in to the idols of the, of the culture and the society. And that's not going to change uh, in any major way until the fourth century,
1: when you get Emperor Constantine coming in. What's really sad is that human nature hasn't been upgraded that much over the centuries, that we still, sometimes as societies, like to choose certain groups of people who aren't like us and blame them if things are going bad. It doesn't take a lot of effort for any one of us to go online today and see who are the groups that we're blaming for problems that we are experiencing. And furthermore, people still seem to want to be pulled into the worshiping of individuals who have power. And let's just make a brief example. If you remember the the Germans used to have, uh, the ruler was called the Kaiser. That word is a variation from the Latin word Caesar. So the Germans were basically saying, we have a super powerful single individual who's gonna sit on the throne, we'll call him the Kaiser. And even the Russians, they had their one powerful ruler called the Tsar. And it's actually a variant from the word Caesar. So we all have in our fallen nature, this propensity to want to worship a single human or a set of humans and give them all of our love and loyalty and to then exclude others who are children of God, to be our neighbors and to blame them when things don't work. And so among the things we might ask ourselves is, are we willing to listen to Paul and focus on who the real king is, who has done all these things for us, he's sacrificed for us, he's been loyal to us. Or are we going to stay in our fallen nature and mistreat people because something didn't go well in our lives or in society? Or they weren't part of my tribe worshiping this human that seemed to have a lot of power. So this is, I think, a cautionary opportunity for all of us to reconsider our own our own perspectives. So
0: now, as we get ready to jump into The epistle to the Philippians, it's fascinating to watch how true love can be given to the true king, the the God of heaven and earth, as opposed to our uh, history's attempts at giving love and loyalty and sacrifice and service to the pantheon of false gods that are that that can't give anything in return because they don't have that power, they don't have that love to return. And as we get ready to dive in, just ponder for a moment, have things really shifted that much in 2000 years? We don't have Caesar all around us in our physical and visible world today, but we, we have other potential idols and false gods and false prophets that we do carry in our pockets if we want to access them that way. And they are looking over our shoulder and they are persecuting and mocking when you don't worship at their altar, when you don't do things their way. And there's a variety of those that exist in our world today. So hopefully with that foundation as we jump into Philippians, we'll be able to keep our focus fixed and locked on the true throne of God, and he who is worthy of our sacrifice, our focus, our service, our loyalty, our love, and rooting our identity in him. That is that is the message of Paul the Apostle to these Philippian saints. So let's, with that foundation, let's dive in. Noticing how hard now, Maybe maybe you haven't picked up on this reality, how hard it was to be a true follower of Christ in the first century in this Greco-Roman world. This was, this was not the path of least resistance for a citizen in that, in that day and age. So, he, he begins by writing, as he always does, uh, introducing himself, and in this case, Timothy is with him, and extending that grace and mentioning God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in verse two, as he always does. And he's so grateful. He's thanking God for his remembrance of them because the people at Philippi were so good to him and have continued to be good to him. And he's in prison and they've sent somebody with some gifts to to cheer him up and to help him in in his bonds. And it's just touched his heart. And in response, he's written this letter. And let's pick it up in verse six being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's that idea of discipleship is a long game. It's not a short event. It's a long process. And he's saying, I know of the grace that has begun with you, and I have confidence it's going to continue until the end. Verse 7, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace." Those are good words coming from Paul to the Philippians. I wonder if we translated those and used those words as being spoken messianically, as words coming from Christ to us today, and see if they still apply even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace." It, it fits beautifully this idea of this outward turned set of arrows coming to us from God And now Paul is reflecting that Christ-like attribute to these Philippian saints so they can experience some of the grace that God has granted to Paul coming through Paul to them. It's, It's a beautiful concept that you can apply in your home, you can apply in any church calling you ever get or in any relationship you ever have. What an amazing thing happens when we live our life in such a way to say, Heavenly Father, here I am, please make of me an instrument of thy grace. Help people when they have interactions with me, walk away from those interactions saying, God is good, there's hope for my future. They they feel uplifted, they feel edified. That's the kind of person we all wanna be in an environment that is surrounded by all kinds of other selfish motivations and temptations, quite frankly.
1: In verse 8, he continues, he says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you, all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. It makes me think about church leaders who uh, often say in general conference and other settings how they pour out their hearts in prayer to God on behalf of the saints. That people who've been asked to serve in any leadership position in the church, it's not for their own benefit, it's so they can be serving God others. And we see this in Paul, we see this in modern-day church leaders. Their interest is to have God's love spread abroad in the hearts of the people they serve. Love that. Now you go to verse 10,
0: that ye may approve things that are excellent, or, or test, or prove, Put them to the test and show this is is actual, as opposed to the world you live in, Philippian saints, where people are saying, make all these offerings to to our, our gods and goddesses. He's saying, no, let's prove things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God but they lived in a world and we today live in a world that is all about the praise and the glory of men and women, of humans. And he's saying, get above that. Don't worry about what what the world is seeing and look for the praise and the glory of God. And then he goes on to describe how that since he is now in bonds and in prison, it's actually led to good things happening. Are you you seeing the the messianic connection here? That it's in the bondage that Christ willingly took upon himself or allowed to be placed upon him, that all of these good things flow into our life because he became a a servant, a bond servant in his infinite atoning sacrifice as well as throughout his ministry then all these good things happen. Well, Paul's using himself as an example saying, look at verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places, and many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Have you noticed that Paul's been spending a lot of time in prison, and he's gonna continue to spend a lot of time in prison? He's not popular among the, the magistrates, the rulers, the leaders of the different uh, regions that he's been preaching in because he is literally seen as a public threat. If, if this guy is allowed to keep spreading his word and more people stop going to the temple and making their sacrifices and joining in these feasts and festivals and ordinances to our god or goddesses, then we're going to be overrun or we're going to have floods or droughts or pestilence. We've got to stop this guy. And yet he's saying, because I'm now in bonds and everybody knows that I'm preaching Jesus, others are more emboldened to start preaching Jesus. That is not the logical conclusion most would draw, but that's what's happening. As you notice for those first 300 years until Constantine in, in the fourth century, the Christians are being persecuted like crazy. Uh, sometimes more than others, but lots of persecution, and you would expect that that would decrease the numbers. But isn't it fascinating that the external persecution actually deepened the faith and and deepened the roots of their, their discipleship, and the work grew amidst the persecution? Now, I wonder how we could apply that today. I wonder if you look around at external pressures on your faith, external pressures on your testimony, they don't have to destroy your faith, brothers and sisters. They can actually cause a deepening of trust in God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ rather than a a weakening of our foundation. The only time that we struggle is when we let those external Negative voices and and pointing fingers of accusation, when we let them become internal doubts and fears that start driving our behavior, in in shaky ways where we start to abandon the roots of our faith and start embracing more what we don't know, rather than rooting deeper in what we do know, and so it's it's this fascinating. Uh, conclusion that he's drawing here. My bonds are actually leading to great
1: benefit for all of you and for everybody
0: here in the palace where he's where he's in prison.
1: It reminds me of something we talked about a few episodes ago, this phrase, this happens to me versus this happens for me. And Paul seems to be so empowered by the love and truth of God that he no longer sees himself as a victim, which is a, a pretty common fallen nature perspective that we see things are happening to us. Paul is seeing things happening for him. And he essentially declares, the bonds I'm in have created a positive opportunity to spread the gospel. And he says, I'm willing to die because if I die, I get to hang out with Jesus. But I'd prefer to stay here so I can act like Jesus and suffer as he suffered in order to spread his love. So, it's a very interesting perspective. It causes me pause to say, what am I doing in my life? Am I looking at my circumstances and choosing to see them in a positive light of things happening for me, or am I choosing to be a victim? Now, what's interesting, we all know the power and the principle of agency, but if you think about it, most things that go on in the world we have no control over. If you really think about what you truly, truly only control in your life, it's not a lot. So most things that go on are outside your control. So you can either choose to be a victim or you can choose to be empowered and say, these are things that are happening for me and I'm gonna use my agency to receive things that I didn't choose, but I'm gonna choose to receive them for good. So now, uh, Taylor
0: already alluded to this, but he gives this little—it's um, this moment of reflection, starting in verse 21. It's—it's it's similar to to William Shakespeare's Hamlet character when he gives the the famous "to be or not to be" sequence. He knows very well that death is an absolute possibility in his in his condition. In, and he knows that it there are certain things he could do to basically guarantee that that would happen. So look at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I wot not, or I I don't know what to choose. I'm I'm struggling between these two things. I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Once again, are you seeing a reflection of the divine attributes of Jesus Christ here as he works his way through the infinite atoning sacrifice process at any given point of time throughout that event, he could have said, I am free to give up the ghost at any time and it would be so much easier. To, To die would have been freedom for him. But he chose to live all through that awful ordeal until he could say those three words, it is finished. And why did he do that? You'll notice all of these arrows that we've been using for us focusing on him, his entire life culminating at infinite proportions through his his atoning sacrifice experiences involves every single one of these arrows coming from the throne, from him outward to us. His focus was on us, not himself. His sacrifice, it was for us, not for what he could gain, but for what he could help us gain. His identity was focused on helping us have an actual identity, a purpose for existing, and a focus to the future on what we could become. His service was all on us. His loyalty was to us, and ultimately this act of love was to us. So isn't that fascinating that the Lord Jesus Christ did all of these things because of his faith in us and his love for us and his loyalty to us. And then after doing that in infinite proportions, he turns to us and says, now will you give me your loyalty? Will you give me your faith? Will you give me your love? and our love is so much smaller. Our loyalty and our devotion and our sacrifices are infinitesimal in comparison to His, but He's okay with that. He's okay as long as we keep striving to focus on Him. I love love this concept here, when you look at it beyond just Paul talking about himself and see it as a metaphor, if you will, a, a parable, for the Savior himself and his interactions with us. So to conclude Paul's little to be or not to be portion, I love something that that Elder D. Todd Christofferson shared in his talk called The Divine Plan of Becoming More. He says, when we see mortal life in context, we see that it is not a question of to be or not to be but rather to become more or not to become more. That's really the choice and the decision that faces each of us today is, am I going to take, as Taylor's saying, all of these things that are happening and am I going to choose to have them be opportunities for me to strive to become more, especially in this case, more like the Savior, or am I going to shrink Am I going to become less because of what's happening? Um, which now brings us to chapter two, which contains one of the most sweet hymns in in the entire history of the the Bible. And some of you are saying, "Wait a minute, a hymn? Yeah, this, there's a there's a song here." Uh, the Philippians letter contains this song in chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. So, to set the stage for that song, that that hymn, look at verse 3 through 5. First, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, that would be an amazing world to live in if everybody was esteeming everybody else as better than themselves appropriately, not in a a self-loathing way, not in a scrupulosity way, I'm never gonna be good enough, but in a looking at other people with genuine love and respect. Verse four, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others,
1: and let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Remember, these saints would receive these letters Somebody would read the letter to the saints. So people would be hearing these words, not reading them on a page. It wasn't like they had a photocopy machine and said, everyone just read this on your own. And there may have been an opportunity for them to pause and actually sing this hymn together. So we're going to now read the words of this hymn that, that describes Jesus Christ and his qualities. So Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's a beautiful,
0: beautiful hymn loaded with all kinds of things. Let's go back and unpack some of these these principles. If you look, starting in verse six, you get this doctrine of deification or doctrine of exaltation, this ascension where he's in the form of God, and we learn from Genesis that, that you and I are created also in the image and likeness of God, and he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So, this exaltation, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, it was made in the likeness of man. So, he who was in the form of God a God before the world was. If you look at John chapter one, verse one through five, kind of gives that that perspective of of his identity. That he emptied himself. The the Greek word here has this connotation of of emptying his his godliness, so to speak, to come down this condescension to become like us, and then in the form of man, he's. He dies the lowest form of death possible in the first century, a Roman crucifixion on a cross. And it mentions that at the the bottom of verse eight, even the death of the cross. So the highest God comes down and dies the lowest death so that, verse nine, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given given him a name which is above every name. Oh, the, the symbolism and the irony are thick. On the cross, what did, what did Pilate put on the, the title for the cross? The King of the Jews. <sighs> what, he, what he should have labeled it is the King, period. King with a capital K. He is the King of Kings. He's the king of heaven and of earth and of all things that in them are. He is the king, but he was being mocked by men with this lowliest of deaths. And that's that's how the world judged him. But how did God judge him? As the,
1: the highest of all and gives him the name above all. Here is God himself who descends to become like man, and so you see this inversion of humans who are grasping to make themselves like gods, and yet God himself makes himself like a human, so he can uplift everybody to be like God. And I love how Paul, he just uses, and this is just like Jesus as well, often his teachings would use these parallel contrasts and to show these inversions that the way we think of reality sometimes is quite different than what it truly is that the low will be exalted and the high will be abased. And speaking of the abased, look at verse 10,
0: at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's 100%, that leaves nobody out. At the coming of the Lord and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And he says in verse 11, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22 and 23 here. And if you go back and read Isaiah 45, you see that the context there is speaking of the Lord God. And so what Paul is doing with these Philippian saints is he's helping them to see that the Lord God of the Old Testament, the God that Isaiah is referring to, the God that has performed all these mighty miracles with all these the children of Israel and back with Adam and Enoch and Noah and Abraham before, that being that every knee is gonna bow and confess him, well, he now has a name, it's Jesus Christ. It's not just Jehovah of the Old Testament, it's now God came down, became one of us, And it is Jesus Christ, the divine king of heaven. And when he comes back, as it is in many cultures through the history of the world, when the king comes in, everybody bows down. Well, when Jesus comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now, we hear that and that makes us excited and we're thinking, oh, that's wonderful. To the Philippian saints, surrounded by people who are insisting that they bow the knee and confess to their gods and to Caesar and to, to pay their loyalty and their sacrifice and their obeisance to the, to the idols and to the gods of the world, this is, this is
1: powerful. And it's bold. Even in the ancient Roman world, the soldiers, when Caesar would walk by, they would symbolically treat Caesar as if he was the glorious sun shining. And what do you do when a bright light or the sun is shining in your eyes? You cover your eyes. And so the Roman soldiers would go like this. Now that has passed down to us today in our military. You salute, and the word salute is a Latin word, means health. So you want health to Caesar. So you salute him and you've covered your eyes so the bright shining light is not penetrating your eyes. And that's where that idea comes from. And Paul is saying, actually, the one who gives a salute or health is Jesus Christ, and His light shines on us and we're supposed to receive it fully. Don't hide from the light. And He wants to uplift you into the light. Now, those words don't show up here, but contextually, the Philippians would have understood this. And that Paul is then going on to say it, like, because of what Jesus has done, we all should follow His example, be willing to suffer, that we can spread light and love. And that goes back to what Paul was talking about in chapter 2. One, he'll talk about it in chapter three, that because of the story of Jesus Christ, Paul wants his own life to model the story of Jesus. And frankly, if we're gonna take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ, we, like Paul, need to get on that path and be willing to allow things to happen for us for the greater good.
0: So, the the hymn to Christ concludes here, which, by the way, have you noticed that here at this early period of the church's uh, beginnings, they're singing hymns to Jesus. Well, the the Greco-Roman citizens around them are noticing, wow, they're even singing songs to this this man that, that was crucified, and they're finding this very odd. We'll look at verse 12. He continues on, wherefore? because of this, because of all this incredible doctrine contained in that little hymn. Verse 12, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, some of you are probably thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I thought fear was the opposite of faith. And I thought, we shouldn't be afraid to move forward and doubt not. What he's doing here is he's quoting Psalm 2, verse 11. It's this this necessity for us to focus on connecting with the Lord so that we can work out our salvation. I can't live the gospel for my children. I can't eat a meal for you. I can't go and have an experience for Taylor. There are certain things that we each have to, to accomplish through our own use of agency, and he's encouraging that. And now he says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So if you use the Savior's example through the atonement as a, as a model here, and if you picture a sacrifice altar, well, I bring my will, and I sacrifice that on the altar of the Lord. I place my desires, my goals, my money, my talents, everything that I have, I put it on the altar, encapsulated with my will. And what do I get in return? I get his power and his will, not my will, but thine be done, Well, his will is not to have me be a miserable person or to be an unsuccessful person or to be an unfruitful person. His will is actually for me to grow and expand and be fruitful and at times suffer tribulation, bondage, affliction, disease, death, uh, loss. And if I just continually stay at the altar of the Lord and keep sacrificing my will in exchange for his, and then totally trust and love and sacrifice for him, then I can let go of the the anxiety of not feeling like I'm in complete control and why are all these bad things happening to me, but rather take that perspective that Taylor was talking about and say, oh, here's another challenge coming my way. I wonder what the Lord would have me learn from this one. It's it's easier said than done. I get that. It's easy for me to stand here and preach this doctrine. And It's hard for me to go home and now live it. But it's true doctrine. And the Savior showed us the perfect example of what that actually looks like throughout his life and especially in the, the infinite atonement process. And so it's It's that
1: opportunity for us to strive to be more like him. What's really, I find intriguing about the quote from Psalm chapter 2 is that it's one of these royal psalms which is about divine kingship. And ultimately, what we're talking about here is God himself is the divine king, and if we allow his will to work through us, we also become divine kings and queens. We've talked in the past about how the word Melchizedek, like the Melchizedek priesthood, literally means king of righteousness. And to make it more inclusive, it's kings and queens of righteousness. So the priesthood, God's power doing his will is so that we can have thrones and powers and principalities and be like him. And Paul's saying, we might suffer for a while. The greatest king of all, he suffered and it brought good. So it's okay, we can be on that same path. And he gives us some cautions
0: then in, in verse 14, 15, do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So I know you're getting pounded with persecution there in Philippi, but keep holding on to the
1: king of of heaven, Christ, and you'll you'll be this light. I think about these Christians who didn't have access to uh, print scriptures on a regular basis or satellite TV with General Conference beamed into their homes, or even having a, a mobile device where you can be reading General Conference talks every day. Imagine how precious these words were to the Philippians and other Christians to the point that they're in this really tough environment. They've received these amazing, powerful words of doctrine and consolation. You can see why this letter was preserved over so many centuries. It wasn't like Paul had nothing else to say in his life, but this one resonated so much with these people under deep challenge that they shared it, they memorized it, they wrote it down, and they kept spreading it to the point that we now have access to it in our time. I just find that so heartwarming. It's
0: powerful. Now, look at verse 17. Yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Once again, I think you can hear the messianic uh, reflection coming through here that this is, this is Paul simply reechoing what the Lord himself did for us, that he was sacrificed for all of us, and he joyed in that sacrifice, and he rejoices with you all in the sacrifice. But I love that the Savior's natural response to his sacrifice for us is an overflowing love and kindness and compassion and mercy and grace. So, now we turn to chapter 3, where Paul begins by talking about a little bit of his his autobiographical history, what what he's done, where he's been, uh, the the prices he's paid, so to speak, to get where he is. But notice what he says in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. He's saying everything this world has to offer me, and you're there in Philippi, this metropolitan, very rich, prosperous, powerful, uh, famous place in the in the Roman Empire, one of the one of the central uh, places of power, and he's saying. I count all of that as dung compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Fascinating that we live in such a prosperous world today. And if Paul were standing here today, I I think he would be fascinated with all the amazing things we have available, but I don't think he would change his sentiment. I think he would say it's still what we're doing right here, right now, studying, digging in, trying to find the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the reality of of the King, so that we can more fully serve him, love him, sacrifice for him, and build our identity around him and in him.
1: Again, Paul is trying to convince the Philippians, and us by extension, that Jesus' story should become our story. This we can see throughout the text. Paul is trying to say, Jesus gave everything up. He was God in heaven, he gave it all up and suffered the deepest cruelties that humans could imagine. And he gained all. And I, Paul, am willing to do the same. And Paul is inviting us to also just look around us and say, let us not get distracted by the trappings of the world and realize that we also have a divine origin. And we too are in a humble state, in a fallen nature, and we can suffer like Jesus and receive that for good so that we can be exalted back into divine presence of God. Beautiful, now look at verse 12. Not as though I had already
0: attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, or you look at the footnote there, 12b, I press forward, I'm striving, that word that shows up in the Temple Recommend interviews in multiple places, I'm, stri- I'm pressing forward, I'm, I'm putting my very best effort here, I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. The wording there is is a little complicated, but look at the the incredible analogy here. Paul's saying, look, I'm seeking after Jesus. I'm apprehending, I'm following in the path. I'm trying to attain unto Christ to be able to, to achieve all that he has to give me. And then he gives this, as Taylor had mentioned, Paul likes doing these reversals. He says, basically, this last phrase, also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. So, here we are thinking, we're doing all of this reaching after Christ, when he says, truth be told, it was Christ Jesus who apprehended me. He reached for me, and now he asks me to reach for him second. And you know Paul's history. You know what he was doing before, and you know the story of the the road to Damascus, and Jesus apprehending Paul first. And now Paul spends the rest of his life apprehending the Lord. What a beautiful example for all of us to not get too uh, prideful or overconfident, thinking, look what a good person I am, doing all of these amazing things, trying to come unto Christ. This is Paul's gentle reminder. Long before you sought for Christ, Christ already sought for you, and he apprehended you. Now it's our turn to reciprocate and strive to be more like him in doing the the mirror uh, apprehending of trying to find him. Look at these beautiful words in verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Once again, we know Paul's past. We know the struggles. We know his, he's not proud of that. And he's saying, in Christ, I can forget those. I'm not going to completely forgive them. I've learned from it, but I'm now going to turn and face the future. I wonder if many of us spend too much time feeling uh, silly or shamed or guilty or regretful because we're spending so much time turning and looking to our past. The invitation, one of the many invitations of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to repent in a Hebrew context, to turn toward Christ, face the future in Christ, rather the past in my weakness. You generally walk the direction you're facing. If we spend too much time looking at the past in shame and regret and remorse, we're probably going to end up feeling pretty bad about ourselves and about God and about others for that matter. But if we can figure out how to allow the Savior to actually carry those burdens for us, leave them in our past, his words, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, and truly taking the hand of the Almighty Son of God saying, please allow me to take your yoke upon me, walk with me, help me move forward, not backward, then miracles can happen. And he says, verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's something to look forward to is this exaltation, this enthronement that Christ promises us if we'll press forward with steadfast faith in him and a love of God and of all men.
1: And this gets us to the conclusion in chapter four, where he tells people, okay, it is now your turn to follow my example, and I'm simply following the example of Jesus Christ. And then he concludes with uh, a typical, beautiful uh, Thanksgiving. So this is a really, really powerful letter. And in our own lives, sure, this was written 2000 years ago, but it still matters because we all strive To be followers of Jesus Christ. If you have taken upon yourself the name of Jesus Christ, like Paul, we can glory in afflictions and suffering. We can see that the things that are happening for us allow us to be like Jesus Christ and that good can flourish because of the challenges we face, and that ultimately, like Jesus Christ, we are brought back into the presence of God and we are glorified and made divine. That's powerful. And and by the way,
0: for those of you who love the 13th article of faith, in that 13th article of faith, it tells us that we, indeed, we may say we follow the admonition of Paul. Well, the admonition of Paul is found here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, that says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure or lovely or of good report, if there be any virtue or if there be any praise, think on these things. These things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Mm. This is an important point here because many people in the world, they read only certain portions or selections of Paul's writings, and they'll focus only on the grace or the faith aspects, and they'll completely skip the works, the the doing parts of Paul's epistles. And here's a classic example of Paul saying, you've seen all these things, now do them, and then God's peace shall be with you. Paul is not uh, just sit back and let Jesus do everything for you. He's he's the kind of an apostle that is teaching God's grace is going to help you do all the things you need to do to become the person you need to become. And by the way, verse 13, the the youth theme is really powerful. I can do all things through Christ,
1: which strengtheneth me. It's that very grace. That's it. Grace is the oxygen in our spiritual lives that makes our lives possible. It's not just our spiritual lives. So grace is the core foundational element that animates our ability to do. So we need to receive the free gift so that we can enact what grace looks like.
0: So that brings us now to the Epistle to the Colossians. Now the Colossians, these, these people living in Colosse, it's about a two to three day journey from Ephesus in, inland in Turkey. Um, it's, a small, it's, it's a smaller town and there's a, a body of saints there. The leader of that group seems to be Philemon and we'll cover his letter in a, in a future lesson. So these people in Colosse, they're facing many of the same issues as the, the people in the huge metropolitan city of Philippi or the big city of Ephesus. It's just on a smaller scale, but it's the same imperial sacrificial expectations and, and the devotion to their gods. And you're in a smaller town where everybody knows everybody a little bit better, it's still very, very difficult to be a Christian at
1: this time in those places. So, Paul wants to convince them that because of the liberty of Jesus Christ, of what he did, we can live in the present and experience God's kingdom now. So, if you're a Jew, it also means you can uh, move on or upgrade from the laws. If you're say, a a pagan who's now become a Christian, you no longer are bound down to the religious expectations that you may have found in your pagan religions, that Jesus provides liberty and a new identity. And perhaps one of the most powerful passages here, again, there's another poem that is similar to the hymn we saw in Philippians, but if you look at Colossians verses 15 to 20, this is maybe one of the most important aspects of this particular uh, letter where Paul is expressing key characteristics of who Jesus Christ is to empower the people with this new identity that we've been talking about. So, Paul introduces this poem or quote in verse 15. In verse 14, talking about Jesus, he says, in Jesus, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they are by things in earth, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven." Now you imagine for these early Christians, this is a really powerful, dense, summary statement of core characteristics Of who Jesus Christ is. And in this Greco-Roman environment where you have gods dedicated to almost every kind of natural phenomenon you can imagine, Paul is saying none of that matters. There is one individual who was God, is God, came down and lived like us, suffered that we might be liberated. He died that he might make everybody free from the bonds of death. So, I think about these early saints in Colossus, where it would have been so empowering for them to know that their identity as Christians, that they have chosen to follow this man, Jesus Christ, that they are now rejecting the powers and forces of the world, but instead aligning in themselves with what is true and real. That Jesus Christ created all things. You don't have to go worship gods of wood or stone or wind or water you can worship the one who made all things and all things were for him. And what is it for him? So that he can deliver salvation to all of us. So in chapter two, he gives us a couple of
0: of beautiful little gems here. Look at verse six. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Remember what he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He's saying, walk in him. Another way he could have said that is walk in the way. That's Christ. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. I love this concept that... uh, Tom Wright shares, he's a New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright. He says, Paul's epistle to the Colossians is a lot more than just showing you how to live a life of thanksgiving, giving your thanks to God, if we were to add that to the list. But he said, he's actually showing these Colossian saints thanks, living, how to change how to how to enhance thanksgiving into thanks living where you live your life and how do you do that how do you do thanks living you do it by walking in Christ with Christ in his way look at verse 8 beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy this is this is a a beautiful caution to these Christians in Colossae who have external pressures being put upon them by the Gentiles, by the Greek philosophies of their time and setting and place. So, these this is a Greek caution here. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So, he's given the 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 Greek caution. And then in the next column, he says, you're also getting pressure from the Jewish side as well to come back to the law of Moses and abandon your faith in Christ. So, verse 16: "Let let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon and of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. He's saying, keep everything focused. On Christ and what you're learning from the apostles, not from these pressures from both sides in your setting and culture. And then he introduces this this worshiping of angels in verse 18 as well, that's intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly
1: puffed up by his fleshy mind. I sometimes feel for Paul just the, the challenges he would have faced both against the Judaizer Judaizers as well as the Greco-Roman philosophies. And it wasn't like Paul was saying, everything in this present world is worthless and just reject everything. There is good in the world. There is good that comes from other sources besides revelation and scripture. But Paul is being very clear. There, You, you have to filter through everything through the revelation we, and liberty we receive from Jesus Christ. And I just, my heart goes out to Paul, just the challenge to create that freedom, to help his audience know that they are free in Jesus Christ and they no longer need to be bound down by the false traditions of people who um, maybe were well-intentioned but didn't have the fullest understanding. So in chapter 3, he he gives them
0: some additional instructions for how to live a life of thanks living, uh, verse two: Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Don't you love that your affection, your 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 mind, the things that you focus on and and seek for and love, have them be above. Verse five: Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth: fornication, uncleanness, inordinance, uh, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Did you notice the symbolic uh, uh, irony here? That the wrath of God comes because people are worshiping idols. But what is the tradition of those very people? It's if you don't come and worship this idol with me and sacrifice to this idol, then the God of this idol whose spirit we're hoping comes and occupies this idol we've built for it or in this temple we've established for it is gonna be angry with us and the wrath of this God is going to destroy us in one form or another. Paul's using that cultural norm to say, yeah, when bad things, if, if the wrath of God is gonna come, it's because you've been spending too much time at the feasts and festivals and idol uh,
1: ceremonies of the, these pagan uh, practices. As well as doing a lot of other evil things that he summarizes in verse five with some kind of uh, difficult English words that we don't use commonly today. The summation for me of chapter three is in verse 11,
0: where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying, stop doing this division and find the unity in Christ. It's all centered in Christ. Which brings us to chapter four, where he's going to close the epistle. And it's here, by the way, where you you are introduced to Luke in verse 14, the beloved physician. So you've heard us talk multiple times back when we were doing the gospels, in the gospel of Luke, how he's this physician and he pays attention to suffering and healing and people's on the margin uh, of society. And here's where Paul mentions him as one of Paul's missionary companions as being the beloved physician. I love the fact that Luke is once again uh, reflecting what we've talked about with Paul reflecting the divine attributes of Christ, because at the end of the day, Luke may be called here the beloved physician, but Jesus Christ is the beloved physician, the greatest healer of all time. And so, we love Luke because he's reflecting that attribute of the divine. We love what we're getting from Paul because we can see through the lens of Paul the Lord Jesus Christ, and hopefully, as we continue to study and immerse in these scriptures to learn more about Jesus Christ and interact with people and practice these principles, then people will be able to look through us and see Jesus Christ as well, rather than have the focus be on us. So in closing, these are incredible epistles written to people with incredible, deep, sincere needs at that time 2,000 years ago. But the principles aren't all that different today. It's as if Paul were writing through space and time to us today to come unto Christ, give him our focus, give him our service, our loyalty, our love, our thanks, our sacrifice, and root our identity in him today, because he is the king in spite of all of the world's uh, gods and goddesses that have been set up uh, to compete for our time. And we know that he lives, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.